Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Steve Flink as is tradition after every single major. Steve is a member of the International Hall of Fame, a writer for Tennis.com, an author of two tremendous tennis books, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time, and most recently, Pete Sampras' Greatness Revisited. And of course, we're going to get into everything U.S. Open. For sure, a lot of uh, Djokovic-Medvedev coming up as well as uh, some of the other men who uh, had notable results at the U.S. Open, either surprisingly good or maybe surprisingly bad. I'm going to uh, hit on the women's side as well. And uh, before we do all of that, I just want to thank the sponsor of today's video, Rally Tennis. Rally Tennis is a new mobile app that makes it easy to play tennis in your area, whether you want to compete or just train. Creating an account is free. Just head over to rallytennis.com or search for Rally Tennis in the App Store. And if you sign up and use me as the refer, you'll also get $10 towards your account. Without further ado, here's Steve Flink. We're joined once again by Steve Flink, the Hall of Famer for the traditional post-major chat. Steve, as always, it is, uh, it is an honor to be joined by yourself, and I can't wait to, to get into this U.S. Open. Yeah, a lot to talk about, Gil. I'm looking forward to it as well. Well, I think the natural place to begin, as usual, is with that men's final. And the most natural place to start, in my opinion, is just how it was different from Australia, given that was uh, our first discussion of the major calendar and both slams on hard courts ended with the same matchup, but with a radically different scoreline. And in this case, Djokovic going for the uh, grand slam was uh, one match short and Daniil Medvedev coming through in straight. So what was different from the circumstances in Australia? Well, circumstances in Australia, Medvedev is, I believe, on a 20-match streak. He had won the last couple of events he played last year at the ATP Masters 1000 and the ATP Finals. And then you came all the way into the finals of Australia riding this big winning streak. And with many people thinking this was going to be the breakthrough for him because Djokovic had had some struggles during the tournament with an injury and they did overcome that and started to play well at, at, in the toward down the stretch, but you still didn't know you weren't sure. And, and so many people thought this might be Medvedev's time in his second major final after he'd come so close against Rafa in the 2019 U S open five set loss. Everybody, Gil, you, you and I are going to dissect this, but everybody yeah. at the time felt that Novak played the perfect strategic match there. They thought he he played deep down the middle. He forced Medvedev to try to create. I thought he, he, he I thought to me the key thing in was that in Australia he was immensely inspired. It was his court. He'd never lost a final on that court. Uh, he put the injury behind him, whatever had been going on there with the five-setter with Taylor Fritz that he was able to squeak through. That was long behind him. He'd been getting better match by match throughout the tournament and felt he was peaking and did. And they had each broke once early. Novak had the first break, Medvedev the next one. And then Novak squeezed the first set out 7-5 and then ran away with it, two and two. And I, I felt like, okay, Medvedev had beaten him in the ATP finals, but Novak was showing him best of five is a different story and majors are a different story. And he knew what he, 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 I thought, played it strategically very wisely. And Medvedev got flustered, by the way. Medvedev also got flustered. You saw him getting into it with the crowd a little bit. And he seemed very moody that day. And when he got behind, he seemed to get uh, discouraged. And he didn't quit by any means, but he definitely had, had a sort of a, a hangdog downcast look. This time... 
obviously the circumstances are so different coming at the end of the Grand Slam season. Djokovic now having overcome all those, made all those comebacks from a set down, even lost a set in his first round match, which was not the first set, it was the second set. But then, then he had that string of come from behind wins, uh, one after another, starting with Kay Nishikori, then the American Brooksby, then of course uh, he did it against he did it against Berrettini and he did it against Zarev. And you felt like, okay, he just was getting better match by match. He played a great last three sets against Berrettini yep. and he played a, a very good five set match against Zarev, particularly the fifth set. So you felt like, okay, yes, that was a long match, but he's ready. Medvedev, we didn't know for sure. We knew he was in good form, but he had two, almost too easy a draw, I thought. Yeah. Uh, you know, nobody really tested him. Felix, FAA should have won the second set when he served board at 5-3 and got to 30-11, later had a couple of set points. That could have become a test, but otherwise, yes, Medvedev dropped one set in all his matches and breezed into the final. You knew he was confident. You knew he was playing well, and he had won a... Masters 1000 in Canada over the summer, but I still, I still liked Djokovic's chances given what was on the line and the way he'd been handling the pressure. But of course, that's not the way it unfolded at all. It was four, four and four. And you saw from the beginning, Gil, that Djokovic, I mean, very first game, 40-15 on his serve and he let it get away. And then uh, he nearly lost his serve a second time in the third game when he went down 15-40 and he bailed himself out, but he was only won three points on Medvedev serving the whole first set. And he just looked out of sorts. He looked, he looked really tense and you didn't know how much of this was physical, how much it was an accumulated strain of going for the grand slam and withstanding all the pressure in all those matches, all the way up to the final, the whole season and particularly at this event in New York. And I, I thought Medvedev handled it well. The other thing that was really striking was this crowd. Nobody would have believed how they, they, they were there for history. They were there. They were very effusively supporting Djokovic. Mm-hmm. And on a, on a good day, when he's at the height of his powers and he's playing well and building leads, it could have been an, a, a really, it could have been the wind at his back and, a, and, a, and it could have propelled him. But he was not really, in, he wasn't in that kind of form. And to Medvedev's credit, he was tuning the crowd out very well. And before you knew it, we went into the second set, and that's where I think the match turned permanently because yeah. Djokovic had the love 40 at the start, Gil, and to go two love up, and he squandered two of those three break points. One when he chased a drop shot down and decided to slice it off his forehand cross court instead of coming over it, which was an odd choice for him because he was there in plenty of time. And the second was on the third break point. He just sliced it back in in the net and kind of slapped himself, hit, hit himself with his hand several times in uh, in just dismay that he had blown that break point and mm-hmm. Medvedev coolly works his way out of that and then the next service game he saves two more break points and think if Djokovic could have gotten that early break either time for two love or three one that it, it probably would have carried him through the set and it would have been interesting to see if he if his energy level had had uh increased significantly if it had given him enough of an adrenaline boost that he could get over what was whatever the physical struggle was. It never looked like he was injured, but he just didn't have a lot of energy. So I, Medvedev was, was terrific though. Once he came out of that bind early in the second, he broke Novak, he controlled the tempo in that set and then did the same in the third, went up 5-1. Now what nobody knew from the comeback with Djokovic coming back from 5-1 down and Medvedev double folding on match point and not serving it out at 5-2 was that he in this period, particularly when he served for the match the second time at 5-4, he admitted later that he was cramping. 
Now he hit it awfully well. It wasn't the kind of cramping Gil that you and I have seen from players where they're writhing, where they're, you know, they're walking around and they cannot possibly uh, hide the pain because they're, they're just, they're, they're desperate to walk it off. He, and Medvedev was, didn't, I guess it wasn't as severe as that, but I, t- I totally believe him that it happened. And he was a very good actor when he had to be and not letting anybody in the stadium know what was going on with him so that he was able to close it out there at five, four. So the bottom line is it was kind of role reversal. He played, Medvedev played a really first rate match. He tactically was very sound. He was hitting a lot down the middle. He was patient and purposeful and stepping up the pace when he needed to. And his serve really came through for him. But the question I'll always have, Gil, and I want to get your thoughts, is what was his serve that great, considering what Djokovic had done on the return against Berrettini and Zarek, who were great servers in their own right? Or, or was this a lot of it, Djokovic being slow off the mark and not making the returns that he customarily does? And I have to say that I lean heavily toward the latter. What, what are your thoughts? I think without a doubt, the biggest difference between the Zverev and the Berrettini match, I believe Novak was feeling a lot of pressure the entire tournament. Sure. Uh, but it's one thing when he feels pressure and he still has his movement um, and he still has his return and he knows how to put the ball in the court even when he's tight. And that's, you know, we talked about the Wimbledon final versus Berrettini, Steve, and we both agreed that Novak was a little tight, but it didn't matter. He still knew how to win that match. In this case, he just didn't seem to have his legs. So I, I also, that's also was my big question is if they, if they play again, what will happen in that dynamic between Medvedev's serve versus Novak's return? Because it just felt like he was not as explosive here. And that's why I thought it was really different with his ability to, to handle the, 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 the pressure that he, that he was feeling. Yeah, very well stated. And let's keep in mind that in the Berrettini Wimbledon final that you just referred to, Novak had had a 5-2 lead in the first and should probably have broken a second time and closed it out. He kind of let him back in and then Berrettini played an inspired tiebreak, but he kind of knew that he was having chances to break. He was going to break him a lot and he did. Here he wasn't as sure, but I, you use the word explosive and that's, that's what was missing to me. That quick explosive move out, that first quick step to get out to a wide serve on either the deuce or ad courts. It wasn't there. And so I felt like he was making it exceptionally easy for Medvedev to hold. And in my mind, Medvedev definitely placed his serve well. His spot serving was great. He didn't overdo the power and not how he serves anyway. But again, look at Australia. I mean, Novak broke him six times over there. You know, nobody had been breaking Medvedev prior to the final or very few times. I think he broke him almost as many times in one day as Medvedev had been broken the whole tournament. But this time it was sort of, it was strange to see that because you're right. He was he was tense in the quarters and semis against Berrettini and Zara, but then look how many times he was able to break them, how he was able to break out of the tension and start making his his normally spectacular returns or the deep solid ones as well, and 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 therefore stamp his authority on the match. So I think Medvedev sensed all that, Gil, don't you? I think he knew what yeah. was going on there. And it just, it calmed him because the crowd could have been irksome to him. It could have been a real burden to think, not that he resented it. And he was actually said afterwards, he really understood why the crowd was for Novak. He knew that they wanted to see this great historical quest end in Novak's favor, but he didn't have a, he didn't have to get tight about it himself because he, 
he never was down a break in the match, never down a break. The one time Novak broke was when he was down 5-2 in the third, two breaks down. So that's not the same thing as Novak breaking early in the second and building a bit of a lead. So it's interesting psychology. Absolutely. And on the psychology front, we, we have seen Zverev and, and Tsitsipas have two set to love leads in major finals, and it ends up right. being Medvedev as the one to, to convert it. And Steve, we've talked about in the past uh, about Medvedev's uh, moodiness at times and, and how he can sometimes go off and get distracted or, or get discouraged when things are going wrong. But yeah, I think you know, you know, just yeah. a quick, did you watch the Cincinnati match where he lost to Rublev? Right, where he hit the camera and he it, the it lost the match. Yeah, he completely started to lose it. And then he's calling the trainer. It seemed like he was sort of manufacturing problems for himself. And a match that was well in hand for him completely got away. And we've, we have definitely seen that side of him. Now, that could have happened in the open final, but only if Novak had been managed to get that, to secure that second set and make make Daniel uneasy. But Daniel stayed so calm because he was always out in front. He wasn't being pressured, but we know that side of him. Right. Now, I think the flip coin um, or the flip side rather is yeah. that when things are going right for Medvedev and he's confident and he's in the lead, I think he's superior mentally. Uh, he builds a, a swagger and a confidence when, when everything yeah. is good for him. Um, you rarely, you see him have a killer instinct when it comes to closing matches, in my opinion. Yeah, he does. I totally agree. And that's exactly what he did here. And he deserved it. No doubt about it. He is a very good front runner most of the time. That wasn't the case with Rublev in Cincinnati, but that, that was exceptional circumstances. But yes, he is. If he gets out in front and he's having a great day and he's not having to bail himself out too often on serve and, and, yes, he, he's very tough to beat under those circumstances. But of course, to do it in a major final against Djokovic, that's another story altogether. And, and he managed it quite well. And he conducted himself very well because there was never a sense of resentment about the crowd and never a disrespect for Novak either. But he did show us with some clenched fists. And the, there, there were moments where he showed you how much he wanted it and how determined he was and how confident he was. Do you think the crowd affected the outcome of the match? And uh, I mean, I have my own opinion on this, which I'll which I'll share after I ask you. Uh, but but I think that because Novak has won so many matches with the crowd against him, and the way this one went with the crowd for him, it sparks the question in some people's head: Would it does it actually help Novak for the crowd to be against him and hurt him if they're rooting for him? Well, as far as the crowd being against him, yes, he has used that in his favor. It's never that easy. It's never that pleasant for him when he has to, for instance, when he played better in the 2015 U.S. Open final. Uh, and again, at 2019 Wimbledon, those crowds were overwhelmingly against him. And he did manage to overcome these arduous circumstances. But as far as having a crowd on his side, I think it could have been a big, big benefit had he been on. Imagine yeah. had he started that match in a, in the fashion that he started Australia against Medvedev. And he'd been able to get out in front in the first set and eventually win the first set. And, and then they're applauding him, sensing he's getting closer and closer to the Grand Slam, first man in 52 years to do it. All of that would have been, I think he would have been flowing. And I think it really actually would have, would have been a big, big boost for him. That's my view. I've heard others say, other, say to the contrary, but I, I don't believe it. We're never going to know. 
I, I mean, I suppose if he gave an interview down the road and said, to tell you the truth, it was it was hard for me because I'm not used to having them. No, I think they I think he was really very gratified to have them, but also very frustrated that he couldn't perform for them the way he wanted and they wanted. So it just that did bottle him up, but I don't think it got in his way. I, I completely agree. Uh, I think it comes back down to the way Medvedev was playing, his the the state of his legs and his energy in his legs and and the nerves that that he was feeling. Sorry, Gil, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to, you because I forgot to play off what you said there earlier. He did say, he backs up what you're saying here. He said after the match, Novak, you know, and by the way, he gave a very gracious press conference, but amidst yeah. all his comments and praise for Daniel, he said, I had no legs, I had practically no serve. And, and of course, that was the other th giveaway to me was, did he really want to serve in volley quite as much as he did? It was successful, for sure. He won a lot of points serving in volley, but that, that takes a lot out of you too. But it was almost like he felt he didn't have a choice. And that surprised me. And also that he, he didn't want to grind. He had no intention of grinding. Did he really test Daniel from the baseline the way he could have by saying, okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a 53-stroke rally with you like I did against Zarev, and I want you to prove to me that you can win it. Because in this next rally, I'm not going to miss a ball. I'm going to get everything back. And you got to show me that you can, you can deal with that. And, he, and there was that's the way he beat him once in the Australian prior to that final few years back with just, it was a war baseline. Mackinac has referred to this match a couple of times, but it was like, okay, you want to play me that way, that's fine. And we're both going to be exhausted coming off the court, but I'm going to beat you. That was the attitude. There was none of that in this final. So I think you are right and he is right. I don't think he would have said it either if he didn't mean it. And if he doesn't have any legs, he's a vastly diminished player. The, 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 that's a critical part. It's a critical part of everybody's game. But for him, it's, it's really one of the leading features is, is his ability to defend and his ability to be quick off the mark, to cover the court. I just sensed it even in some of the longer rallies that they had, just watching him move side to side, he was not nearly as fast as usual. 100%. Uh, are there any other tactical notes that that you think uh that that we should discuss before we move on to the big picture uh kind of legacy of Djokovic's season no I mean those are the things those would I don't know how, how you felt those are the things that stood out to me the the feel the feeling this sort of need he had to get in behind his serve granted it he he exploited Medvedev standing so far back so a lot of them worked because he pulled them off the court with the wide serves and then had nice open court volleys in some cases or dug out some good low volleys but but I just felt like where is the where is the second part of the equation here where is the the, the baseline consistency the 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 where why is he not wanting to show Daniel that yes he knows Daniel can be a brick wall back there but so can he yeah so that that he's forcing Daniel to work. He's forcing Daniel to worry more instead of being Medvedev being in a complete comfort zone, which he was for most of the match. Well, the, the serve volleys were, were largely effective. I'd say with the points, one perspective, but coming in increasingly was not productive for him. No, it was not. Yeah. You're so right. Exactly. If it wasn't serving volley, but it was approaching midpoint. Absolutely. And Medvedev was totally onto that Gil and yeah. hitting passing shots at Novak's feet and, yeah, that was not the right idea. He could, he, he should have waited a couple, he, he could have kept, kept trying to orchestrate those rallies. He had a choice on a lot of those approach shots to stay back if he wanted. And normally, I think he would have. Agreed, agreed. Well, um, it was such an incredible and, and memorable run. 
you met, you know, we, we mentioned the Australian Open and that triumph. Roland Garros was probably the, the peak of his performance, uh, taking out Nadal in the semifinal and coming back against Tsitsipas. Um, and then at Wimbledon, he, he was class of the field, even with all of the, the pressure that was on him during that tournament. Then it kind of unraveled a little bit uh, from the Olympics, impressively making the final at the U.S. Open. I don't think that should be diminished. He had to go through, uh, especially the win against Zverev in the semifinal, is an impressive win in my book. Um, oh, oh, very, very, considering right? that had that strange collapse against him in Tokyo. But you alluded to something. Sorry to interrupt again, Gil. I just don't want to forget this. You alluded to something else important there. We we can second guess now and wonder. He made that comment uh, at Wimbledon about, he sounded very doubtful about going to Tokyo for the Olympics. And initially everybody thought, you know, he's not gonna do it. If he says it's 50-50, it's not really 50-50, it's probably 80-20 against, but then he changed his mind and decided to go. It's a long trip, it is an exhausting trip. It didn't end it all the way he wanted with not only the loss to Zara, but he didn't even get the bronze when he lost to Karina Busta. And I just think that was that was disappointing to him because he'd waltzed through to he came through to the semifinals so comfortably. And it looked like he was primed to take the title. And he had Zara of 6-1-3-2, a set and a break, and lost eight straight games. Maybe the 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 exhaustion of the trip being Tokyo plus the the verdict. You know, maybe that ended up being a negative too. I, I always wondered would he have been much would he been better off to skip the Olympics, take some rest, play Cincinnati, use Cincinnati as pressure as preparation for the open, and then come into the open uh, in a very different way. I, I'm I'm very glad you brought that up actually because the you know it's it's not the first time I thought of it, but it's the first time I've thought about this post U.S. Open, and I would have to say. There's a there's a chance that Novak would have come into the open in a better headspace had he gotten the chance to play Cincinnati and just kind of get all of the high stress environment out of his system. Like I think one of the things that really stood out about Djokovic's season, especially towards the end of the summer, is every single time he took the court, the stakes were enormous. And you think yeah. about how and might that be kind of exhausting to go through? Absolutely right. It is even, and you're including Tokyo in that analysis, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. I've, no doubt about it. I mean, there he really wanted, you know, he'd had the disappointed losing right off the bat to Del Potro the last time. And, you know, he had never, he never won a medal. He lost to Murray in London and uh, Del Potro for third place. He, he, the Olympics had not been a pleasant experience for him in terms of results. And here he was thinking, okay, I can get it this year. I can get everything, but I'm sure he must question a little bit even now himself. Did I overreach? Because, you know, even if I had won the gold, you know, I still probably would have come to New York. That would have helped, but he still would have come to New York more exhausted than he wanted to be mentally and physically and emotionally. And it all caught up to him for sure, because we're never going to know, Gil, how much of that was physical and how much of it was the end of the quest for the Grand Slam and the enormous strain that he was carrying within him. Uh, as he got to the latter stages of that tournament, but th there, there was def that was definitely not the Djokovic that we know on big occasions. Not, not the Djokovic we've seen on big occasions, uh, particularly in the finals. I know the season isn't over, Steve, but is this? Do you think that this will will go down as his greatest? There, no, there's some tough one to to contend with, right? 2011 and 2015 would yeah, be the contenders. 
Yeah, they are. They are. They're great contenders. It's going to be a very close. Obviously, if he got in the Grand Slam, the question would, would, would have been answered. There wouldn't have been any question. No doubt about it. But then I look back on 11 where he won them all except for the Roland Garros at the majors where he lost to Roger and he won so many Masters 1000s and it was a spectacular. And then 2015, he was in all of the major finals. His only loss was to Vavrinka in the Roland Garros final. And he won the year-end championships. And it, it, that was a pretty, it, it's pro, those were probably fuller seasons, more complete seasons, more impressive in some ways. But he deliberately orchestrated his campaign this year to just, just be thinking about the majors, which, which I understand because before now it was to have the most weeks at number one. So his priorities had changed and said now it was totally about the majors. So he was just not going to play as many of the, and he didn't care as much about the 1000. So I, 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 I might put it just a little below 2015, which is, which is hard, hard. I can't even believe I'm saying that, but I I wouldn't be saying it if he'd, if he'd won that final on Sunday. Yeah. uh, Completely understandable. He doesn't have a master's this season. um, But again, um, he's, he's 34. So that adds a, a different level of of impressiveness to it is that he's he's still able to uh, have such amazing performances at the majors yeah what are your thoughts Gil? let me give you mine you tell me what you think too i mean i still think we're looking at in the range of three to five more most likely three or four more before he's done i mean i think that that he'll get over this i think his he would have he would have been overflowing with emotions if he'd won the grand slam and, and might've wanted to really take stock of where he was, if he had 21 and, and a grand slam, but now that he doesn't now that it's still tied with the other two with Roger and Rafa, I, I believe his, his, he's going to be more driven, more deeply driven and eager to make sure that he gets back out there next year and, and tries to win as many as he can. I think he'd be hoping to get at least two if he could. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think we're we're looking at the, the the probably the the maximum number might be five, but I I don't see him winning any less than two more. What what are your thoughts? I I agree. I think the key is actually what you brought up with the the drive, and um, I think I probably won't be at all predicting any sort of decline for Djokovic until he um, is able to distance himself from Rafa and Roger. Now, if he's able to do that, or for example, if uh, Rafa and Roger are, are no longer in a position to add to their tallies and Novak maybe has two more, I think at that point, motivation is going to become a question. And it's going to be, you know, how, you know, is Novak motivating himself at presumably 35, 36 or 37 years old uh, to continue to stay at this level? Um, I, and I think I think motivation is the X factor here. You're right. You're right. I, I concur because I think Australia, he's going to say to himself, I got to get this. I need yep. this. I need 21 because we're going to be going to Roland Garros. And I have no idea how Rafa is going to be playing at Roland Garros. But if Rafa were healthy, if that foot was not troubling Rafa and Rafa has a good clay court season, you know, he's still going to be very dangerous at Roland Garros again. And it won't be easy for Novak to repeat. So he's going to want to stay one step ahead. And that and that's going to continue to influence his thinking, Gil, going yep. forward. The physical state of Nadal, I have to assume right now, I mean, I, w- I would be really astonished if Federer added to his total. I mean, I'd be, I'd be surprised if he even got a full 2022 in. Uh, we'll see. I think he's going to try. He talked about having sort of a, a, 
a flicker of a hope, I think is how he put it, or, you know, when he did his, his online announcement, but it's going to be very hard. He's going to be 40. He's going to have lost all this time again, starting again to get used to match play again, wondering if, if this latest knee surgery finally does the trick. And I just think it's, it's asking a lot of himself. And to me, it's very, very unlikely that he, even at Wimbledon, that he puts himself in a position to, to win another major. I think it's really predominantly about Rafa and Rafa's ability to, we'll find out in Australia how he looks and how, how does he have a good Australian like he has most years? I mean, even this year, five center to Sitsipas, he didn't disgrace himself. But uh, the question is going to be, you know, Rafa and Roland Garros, how many more shots? One, two, what, how many is it? And, and Novak having to be wary of that, knowing that if Rafa does get another French, it's going to be incumbent upon him to win a few more elsewhere. So you're right. That's going to definitely uh, matter a lot in his mind. It's going to definitely affect the way he thinks and what he wants to achieve. Do you think Medvedev has joined the, I guess, the tier one that I'd say on, on clay um, has been occupied in large part by Rafa Novak and a healthy Dominic team. And on hard courts has been in a lot of ways in grass occupied by Novak on his own. Um, do you think after this result, heading into majors in the 2022 season, you have to look at the, the hard court um, equation as really Medvedev and Djokovic being on very similar footing? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm, I'm just fascinated to see how Medvedev responds. He's in a different place now. He's in a different yeah. psychological state. He's fine. He got over the hurdle. He, he, he you know, he, he was maybe getting a little frustrated having come that close against Rafa and then getting blown out by, by Novak and Australia. So those first two were difficult for him, but now he has one, but he also has expectations. Others have expectations for him. He has a different kind of pressure now to live up to what he did in New York and prove that he can do it, you know, repeatedly. On the other hand, he does get very, he is very comfortable on the hard courts and he's, he's shown how well this past year he played so great in Australia, despite losing to Novak in the final that, yeah, I, I would think so. I would think they're both going to go in there as, uh, you know, as the, as the two key players and, and everybody's going to be expecting, they're probably going to, they're almost sure they're going to finish the year one and two. Novak has a has a fairly sizable lead right now, but it'll depend on how much he plays, whether he finishes a seventh year at number one. But they'll surely be seated one and two in Melbourne. And, and I think everybody will be anticipating that a repeat of that final. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, round three would be a lot of fun <laughs> for, for everyone to see what would happen. Um, Let's hit on a, a couple of, of the other notable men, um, and, then, and then let's get to the women as well at the end. Um, Alexander Zverev still hasn't taken that next step. He won gold in Tokyo, but in the best of five format, his record really suffers against top 10 players. He's now, um, I believe, 0-11 against top 10 players at majors. Um, yeah. and, and gave Novak a run for his money and played a really good match in parts. But then in the fifth set, start of the fifth set, um, he, he had a letdown, which has tended to happen. Uh, so what do you think, what do you think yeah. is missing? Yeah, I, I would be a little less critical of, because I, I felt like, yes, he didn't play a terribly good game when Novak served the first game of the fifth. Yeah. Made a few errors, but it wasn't uh, understandable. But I, I thought Novak 
those first five games and losing six points, he was pretty, he was just unshakable. And I don't blame, uh, and I also give Zarev a lot of credit for coming back from five love back to five, two and making Novak break him again. He made him work hard at the end. I'm not that discouraged despite that, what happened there, because I, I feel yeah. okay. he loses in five to Novak. He loses in five to Felix at Wembley, lost in five to Tsitsipas at uh, at the semis of the French and a close four setter to Novak in Australia. He's playing good to tennis. He's not playing awful matches on the big occasions. And then, of course, the five setter, the heartbreaker to team in the U.S. Open final a year ago. It's going to turn for him because I just yeah. think he's he's too good a player for it not to happen. And I don't think there's anybody that's really safe from him on his best days. He can he can beat anybody when he's at his best. Uh, if things are working on all cylinders, he's firing on all cylinders. I I think I, I think next year we're going to see that change. I think it's the the I, the other thing about him, Gil, is I don't. He said after the Novak match, and I do believe him, that he could have played on. Physically, he felt fine. I didn't sense that he was physically, and I think he showed that in the last couple of games prior to. You know, when he met, got back from five love to five two and made a little of a go of it, that he still had something left in his tank. And I think uh, I'm I'm still kind of encouraged about him that he will turn the corner next year somewhere, and that uh, that he can there, 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 he can beat any of these guys. And and also when you win that, all these Masters one thousands and you win uh, Olympic gold, you're you're winning the the next most important events. You're showing that you can come through when it really counts. And and again, if it was conditioning and best of five, I'd be worried. I don't, I don't sense his conditioning at all. It's mental toughness. Exactly. Uh, I, I agree. And that's, first of all, just an interesting illustration of just how close most of his losses at majors have been and, and to the best players in the world. Um, it, it's all about closing. It's all about just being in one of these matches and running through the finish line. And that is, uh, is what he's yet to, to really do. And I guess, I guess, um, you're right. The level against Djokovic in the semifinal was never really bad. There's not really a place to really criticize that. I guess it's the prior results that that almost put me in a position to be harder on him because it's happened so many times. Yeah. Oh, and I, I, I hear you. I hear you. And there was a stage where I was a little more discouraged about it, but not not now. I feel like he's still got an awful lot out of the summer to win the gold, to come back and then follow up and win Cincinnati. And then finally to, to lose in the semis of the open. He's, so, he's always getting to the latter stages now. And, and I think it's, it's, he's, it, the talent is just too good. The talent yeah. and the determination are there. And I think the other players know how good he is. So I, I believe next year, actually, frankly, I, I see him getting on the board somewhere next year. Probably not Roland Garros, but one of the other three. Most likely one of the two hardcore events because he still doesn't like grass as much as he does hard. So right. I you know, either he surprises everybody in Australia or maybe he gets the open, but I see him getting something, a big prize somewhere. I think he's pretty good on clay. Actually. I would say oh, yeah. I would probably favor Roland Garros over Wimbledon, but I could see it going both ways there. Yeah. Yeah. There's a case. Yeah. He played well there this year. Frankly, yeah. I thought, I, I thought if he had an early love 40 opportunity right off the bat in the fifth set against Sitsipas, if he would have broken early as he should have, that he might've been in the finals this year. Yeah. That turned the match. Yeah. Um, I want to get to uh, one of the one of the early results because uh, involving Stefano Tsitsipas and Carlos Alcaraz, two sides to it. 
obviously disappointing for Tsitsipas. It's come out a little bit later, at least according to his father, that he was carrying an injury um, in, in that match. Um, Wait, so, in which match? In the Alcaraz match. Oh, that Tsitsipas was hurt. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, that's according to Apostolos. Um, regardless, it was a great match, Steve. I was on the outer courts there doing my uh, doing my my job, uh, so yeah. I didn't see much of it. But I did get to watch Carlos Alcaraz as the tournament went on, and I'm extremely impressed by the 18 year old. Um, so, what did you make of that result? Right, Tsitsipas disappointment, but Alcaraz is really emerging. Yeah, that's that's it. That's that sizes it up. I I felt that. Sitsipas was getting blown off the court there for a while and 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 he did very well to come back and win the second set and then when he went up 5-2 in the third I thought it, you know and I think Cahill and the others they were already speculating understandably so on television about how uh, Alcaraz would respond in the fourth they they assumed he was going to lose the third and was he going to show some some real spunk in the fourth and stay in there and then that was that really shocked me that Sitsipas who has who can serve as well as he does and who served beautifully in the fifth set right up to the very end of the match, the whole fifth set, but he ended up losing it in the tie break that he could lose his serve from two breaks up in the third, which he'd done against Zarev in, in Cincinnati as well. Uh, I, I, I'm amazed that somebody, cause he, he has a very good first serve. There's no way somebody should be winning set. Any player should be winning sets from him from two breaks down, but it happened to him in two big matches. I think that in the end was what cost him the, the Alcaraz match because, you know, Stefanos came back and it looked like Alcaraz had lost his legs and, and you didn't think he was going to be able to survive the fifth and after getting blitzed in the fourth, and yet he did. He hung in there, but Sitsipas was having easy holds most of the fifth set. So it took real guts for that kid to, to raise his game again in the tiebreak, which he did. So I, I was very impressed with Alcaraz. And, and I, I just sorry that he ended up retiring against Felix. I thought that was a little unfortunate. I wish that it could have been prevented in the sense that it almost would have been better not to play the match. But it was so sudden that he walked up to the net. No forewarning. It wasn't like he was limping around the court. You, you saw signs of maybe him being a little tired, but nothing serious enough to make him stop. On the other hand, I'm really excited about his future. And I heard Patrick McEnroe say on a podcast earlier that he thinks within two years that uh, this kid could, could might be number one in the world. I certainly see him by the end of next year being top 10 in the world. Yeah. I'm very high on him because uh, the way he moves reminds me of the best players of the, the modern generation. It really reminds me of uh, the, the elite of the elite from from the the big three or the big four, if you throw Murray in there, and uh, now what Zverev and Medvedev doing at their height is a little bit different. Uh, but right. to me, Alcaraz's footwork and um, really all the tools—it's just uh, what's missing is his serve, which reminds me of how Nadal and Djokovic started. Yeah, exactly. He'll improve his serve. You're so right. You're right. I mean, it will improve, especially Rafa had to improve his serve and did, and he can take a page out of that book. It, it, they'll work on that. Yeah. But what? But he also has that explosiveness in his game. And it was Sitsipas who said, which was really startled a lot of people, that he'd never played anybody to hit the ball that hard. That was some compliment he paid him. Yeah. And, uh, and by the way, I, do, I did find it very touching that Djokovic, you may have heard in one of his post-match interviews, it might have been after the semis, but he, he went out of his way to, to come to Sitsipas's defense on the bathroom breaks. Yeah. 
that Stefanos catching all this flack. And obviously that related a lot to the match against Zarev in Cincinnati. And Zarev, of course, was really at the time with the umpire accusing him of getting coaching from his father. And that's a separate issue. But when it comes to the bathroom breaks themselves, uh, never, their time limit has not been there. So you're just taking advantage of a rule that gives you as much time as you feel like you need. All the top players have done it. Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, every one of them has used it, and Murray, and they've used it for the, for the purpose of kind of collecting themselves, by the way. They don't always go in because they have to see a trainer or because they're hurting or, or just to change their clothes. They're trying to clear their heads. And I've, I've heard Federer talk about that. And so I think it, re it really was uh, unfair. It's not unfair to criticize Stefanos about potentially getting coaching from his father, and that should be cracked down on. There should be some rule where the players has to have his bag checked before he goes in so that there's not even a possibility they could text their coach or their parent or whoever it is. But the general, the, just the general uh, bathroom break itself, I thought he caught way too much flack and it was mainly because of Murray. And I think yeah. Andy's a guy. He's a terrific guy. He had a right to be frustrated because he played a, an excellent match uh, against Stefanos. But I thought he came down on him a little too hard. And then he continued it the next day with a tweet. And it was a little bit, it came across to me as a bit of sour grapes from Andy to, to be quite that harsh. And I've lost respect for him. And Andy went into the locker room himself after the 2012 final four set against Novak because he'd won the first two sets and Novak won the next two. And Murray talked later about how he was looking himself in the mirror and psyching himself up and telling himself he could win it. That's, Part of the reason they do this and not to cheat their opponent, but just to just to gather themselves a little bit and then come back out on the court refreshed and ready to go. So for Andy to be that uh, come down with with such venom against Sitsipas, uh, who I don't think is, is a bad guy, by the way, I, I thought that was too bad. Agreed. Um, people did go back and look at that Murray bathroom break. It was a lot shorter. It was about like three and a half uh, to four minutes, if that matters. Oh. Yeah, no, I, and, and that's true, but he still took it. He still yeah. took it. And, and I don't know whether Andy meant just the length, but he just he was annoyed by the bathroom breaks, period. It's true. Right. And most, most of them have done short. And I think Stephanos did get the message on that. He did. Because then, then he took some shorter ones after that. And, uh, but there's no doubt in his case, by the way, I don't think I've ever seen anybody perspire as heavily as he does. He you, you felt relieved for him that he could change his clothes because he's yeah. sometimes in Cincinnati especially, but New York as well, as if he had just jumped into a swimming pool at a changeover and would come out, out with his soaking clothes, you know, ready to play. I mean, he just got incredibly wet. He's of the Nadal Roddick variety. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So, but, but I agree. Look, there's no rule there. So as a tennis player, you're taught to do what you, what you can to win. Now, if fans don't like that, or if players don't like it, that's their right, but there's no rule against it. So no rule against it. And they, they definitely could come up with a time frame. And it probably should be different at each tournament because you don't know, where, depending on where the right. locker room are. And they can agree on a time limit at each tournament. And that would be the best thing for the players, too. And then you could end this kind of talk. You don't, you don't need this. Everybody uses it, but now it would be understood. Okay, you've got four and a half minutes, you've got five minutes. Dominic Team suggested during the open five minutes. That sounds like a reasonable time frame to me and Opelka talked about how how long it does take to actually change your socks and all the rest of it he was interesting on that yes um yeah it was it was interesting to hear all the players weigh in um 
let's get to um let's get to the women and obviously one of first of all just the the number of incredibly high quality matches were completely through the roof all throughout the tournament um it was it was that was incredible to see but ultimately we're left with two teenagers in the final Emma Raducanu and Layla Fernandez and their runs were were very special and impressive each for different reasons Raducanu because she was destroying everyone from Belinda Bencic uh, in the round prior, Saris Ribas Tormo um, ended up being um, Maria Sakari. Like it, it was just, she was never even challenged. It was so dominant. Um, and then got Fernandez in, in straight sets, never dropped a set. For, for Layla, it was the, the gauntlet of players, the quality of players that she went through and was engaged in many, many battles, always had the crowd behind her and always pulled through. Um, I guess... What did you most appreciate about their games and their emergence for this tournament? Well, I mean, in Layla's case, she's the, obviously she's a really crafty left-hander. She, I, I would have thought she was 28 years old the way she, with her match playing prowess and her ability to solve problems out there and turn these matches around. Because think about it, Gil, in her case, uh, yes, Raducanu impressed her because she just destroyed everybody. Yes, it was a favorable draw before she played Benchich and Sakari. But nevertheless, nobody's taking her beyond 6-4 in the main draw and 1-7-5 set, I guess, in the qualifying. So 10 matches, it turned out that she never even went to a tiebreaker. I mean, that's crazy. I don't care who you're playing. But in Layla's case, she had a particularly arduous draw. To begin, Osaka was serving for the match against her, and Naomi was looking pretty good, I thought, at least on serve. Up 7-5, 6-5, serving for it. It's going to be a 5-5 five and five match and a respectable loss. And she breaks her for the first time and then ends up winning the tie break and winning the match. And Naomi imploded a bit. Yes, but it was a very cagey performance from Fernandez. And then she follows up against Angie Kerber, who's back in form, who's won this tournament five years earlier and, you know, three-time major champion. And Angie's got her set in four, two. And you're figuring, okay, two more holds. I mean, it didn't happen. She came back and beat Kerber in three and, Kerber was really impressed. You could see by her reaction. She came over and greeted her really warmly when it was over. And then it continued against Svitolina, the number five seed, yeah. in, a, in one of the best matches of the tournament that went right down to the wire in a tiebreak in the third. And finally, Sabalenka, number two seed, who everybody thought Gil might be finally ready after getting the semis of Wimbledon to win her first major. And she, did, she definitely self-destructed at times, particularly after leading 4-1 in the first set, Sabalenka. And again, at the very end of the match, serving to stay in it, she played an, a terrible game. But Layla was just, again, terrific at adjusting to the pace and finding ways to redirect and looking for ways to use her touch and get in at unexpected times. She's just, she's really got a lot of creativity out there. But, but then that was not enough to stop Emma. Emma just plain outplayed her in that final. And it was too hard for not a typical 6-4, 6-3, but she outplayed her. And, and yet it was so entertaining. It was yeah. so entertaining. The fans loved it. And they got nearly two hours of tennis because there were some long deuce games. And, it, and actually, to, to uh, Fernandez's credit, Gil, she actually was the first player I saw who made Emma look somewhat baffled and frustrated at times. I mean, she shook through that veneer somehow. And there were moments where of agitation, quiet agitation from Raducanu, but in the end, she's such a worthy champion. And I, I'm encouraged, Gil, because we've seen a lot of musical chairs in women's tennis. We've seen a lot of 
player players winning majors and there was maybe 13 of the 19 previous majors it's constantly a new champion these two are going to be around a long time at 18 and 19 and maybe next year won't be perfect for either one of them or maybe one of them will get on the board maybe radicano wins a second or fernandez the first but in the year in the in the years to follow they will surely win their share of prestigious prizes. I'm convinced of that with the talent and the determination that they each have. And that I think is a, is a great thing for women's tennis because there's such bright personalities to boot. I certainly hope so. Yeah, they're both really easy players to get behind. Uh, being being at the event every day, I mean, I think Layla's matches were, I'll just put it this way, a lot of people went home from the open with a smile on their face because of the show that Fernandez continuously put on. Um, and I think uh, Emma now becoming a global superstar before our eyes in the course of a week and seems like like she has the head on her shoulders to really handle it. She seems uh, in her element uh, where where Naomi, um, it seemed like it was a challenge for her and it continues to seem like global superstar continues to seem like a challenge for Naomi. Uh, it's nothing against, you know, it's not it's not a bad thing and she can't help it, but it's kind of. It's kind of how it how it is. And I think Emma has well, looked a little bit different. Yeah, sorry. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm hoping, Gil, that we're going to see a reemergence from Naomi, whenever it may be, whether it's early next year, middle of next year, where she will she will be revitalized and will have a different outlook again, because I, maybe for selfish reasons, but I would really love to see both Osaka and Barty playing against Fernandez and Raducanu. I mean, great matches among the four of them and see that that often happened in the latter stages of, of majors because Ash Barty, uh, that was a frustrating loss for her. She shouldn't lose to Shelby Rogers. All due respect to Shelby, who, was, who, who really was able to take advantage of a, of a crowd that was fervently behind her as an American player and come from two breaks down in the third. But for Ash Barty to be serving for the match twice, starting at 5-2 and not close it out, it's a shame because she'd won Cincinnati. She'd been a, a worthy Wimbledon champion. She might have even gone on to win here. That was that was disappointing. But I, again, I don't worry about Ash in the immediate years ahead either. And I'm, I'm hopeful that Naomi gets, you know, gets whatever help she needs to deal with her emotional issues and depression. And, and she was very... Uh, open there about how she's not sure when she's going to play again. And she, you know, tearful and it's understandable. It's been a very difficult year for her, but I, I'm hoping she will reemerge and, and, and show us her best tennis, just like Ash will. And what a contrast there would be uh, uh, to watch the two of them playing against the, the two teenagers. Yeah. A hundred percent. And uh, I'm, I'm glad Osaka is taking a break. I'm hoping that's going to be what exactly what she needs. And I'm glad you bring up Ash Barty because I really do feel like she's proven this year. Um, now she didn't play in 2020 and so she couldn't prove it, but she's proven this year. She's a true number one and she really does have a lot of things in her game um, that, that none of the women can say that they have. And I really, I agree. I agree with Got a lot of variety and you know she can slice the back end and drive it she can step up the pace off the forehand she's not afraid to come in it's a very very good volleyer she's got a terrific serve yeah she's a very complete player there are she can the, the likes sabalenka and others on a given day can can overpower her at times but she really she is a she's a very 
sound player and, and a very good match player and, and obviously a great sportswoman on top of all that. And she'll get over this loss. It's not a, she shouldn't have lost that match. She knows it, but I, and, and I don't, I don't think that's going to diminish her, her, the year for her in her eyes, having won her first Wimbledon and her second major. And there's going to be many more to come for Ash Barty. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, let's end on, on, is there any, what are you, what are you watching for, for the next couple months before we hit the season's end? I don't want to ask you about, about Australia right now. Um, we're far away from that and, and we'll discuss that, that at a later date. But, um, as we head into Indian Wells on the unconventional part of the calendar, we approach the year end finals, which will be in Turin this year. What are the things you're, you're looking, you're looking forward to? Well, I'm just, I'm curious to see, you know, in the case of the women, you know, how much will we see of, of, of the, of the two girls, you know, how much will we see of Emma and Layla? Will they, will they build on what they did there and, and cause some excitement elsewhere? Will, will, will Ash, will she decide to go home or go to Indian Wells and play on a bit? And then how, how much does Novak, how much does he want to play the rest of the year? And does Medvedev want to make a legitimate chase for number one? Because when he was asked about it at the Open, Medvedev was talking about how he asked about his points and he didn't even know. And, he, and he, the gist of it, what he said was, I, I don't really, that's not th something I'm thinking about right now. Like it would be a goal for the future. On the other hand, if he suddenly won, if he closed the gap between now and the year-end championships, then maybe maybe he does, maybe we could have an exciting finish with where Djokovic and Medvedev comes down to the year-end championships to, to decide who's number one, and they meet in the finals there. That that could be a nice way to end the year because if Djokovic had won in New York again, he would have pretty much locked that number one ranking up. But now it it's the, the lead is not totally safe. So I'm I'm curious to watch that, especially that that element for the rest of this year to see what how that unfolds. Yep, and and as always, there are some interesting races to see who can get in that top eight. I think for the men, like the first six are pretty straightforward. And then the, the final two will be uh, an interesting uh, contest. And I'm not sure how many, I haven't checked the, the women's side in that respect, but I'm, I imagine that there's a little bit more up for grabs as we hit the home stretch. Yeah, I think, I think so. Yeah. But I, I think we'll, you know, we'll see a good, good ending to the year in both the men's and women's games. And and there's still a lot of, of exhilarating tennis to be played, but we've been a bit spoiled, I would say. We have, <laughs> what we got out of these four majors, I mean, if there wasn't another ball hit in 2021, we'd have nothing to complain about. Absolutely. One of the, one of the better opens that I can remember, and uh, it was a, a fantastic season. And uh, another great season of talking to you after every major, Steve, and it's always a highlight for me. And uh, thanks for coming on once again. Well, Gil, thanks for having me on because it's always a stimulating conversation and we agree on most things, but there's, a, there's plenty of mutual respect and I certainly hope the people watching us are enjoying it as much as we are speaking about it. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.